when Charles Schultz, the author and illustrator and founder and whatever of Peanuts, was talking with the producers of the uh, Christmas special years and years ago, that point when Linus is going to get up and read the Luke version of Jesus' birth. You know what I'm talking about? It gets so quiet. We feel nostalgic about it. They were like, this is not going to work. It's not going to be good. And because he was Charles Schultz, he just said, I promise it'll work. And he left the room. (laughs) Because Peanuts was so powerful at that point, he could just say that. And it worked. Linus read the Luke account of Jesus. And for that reason, among others such as the decorations around me and the way that our culture interacts with Christmas, uh, we are so used to this language. We're so used to Emmanuel. You see the word Emmanuel everywhere. God with us. And as a pastor, it's a very interesting challenge to take words that are probably amongst the most familiar in the whole Bible and point out how astonishing they are. Some of us were in the room when Nora read that part of Genesis 1, or sorry, Matthew chapter 1, as the spiritual and the philosophical and the religious all collide in this very mundane, wild way in just a few verses. I was listening to her read, and I wonder how many of us catch all that was happening. Since I know not all of you were here right at the beginning of the service, I'll reread it, which is fine, by the way. I understand how that works. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, which means what you think it means, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. See what I'm talking about just in verse 18? The spiritual language, the supernatural language, and the very mundane facts of the matter. Just there in one story, or in one verse. How long is it going to take me to read these verses if I do that with every one of them? Could could be a few minutes. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Before that is the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm not going to read it because every time I read a genealogy, I watch people do this. And that's fine. It doesn't sound that interesting. There are almost no verbs, you know, in the genealogy. And yet, there's so much stuff in the genealogy if you and I knew how to read it and not be bored by the repetition of names. Do you see the names? 
and realize how interesting this legacy is? Perhaps you're very fond of David, but boy, he has a checkered history. Jesus is the perfected, better, representative king standing in front of all those who trust in him. Those are his people against a a worse enemy. You remember the covenant with Abraham? You know, the father Abraham, the song. What that comes from is God telling Abraham to go look at the stars. No light pollution. You can see a lot of stars. Did you know that this year, a billion human beings will take the sacrament? I don't know about their professions of faith. I don't know how many of them know that God really loves them and likes them and all that all the good news. A billion humans, though, will take the bread and the wine in some amount of trusting, which means we are the answer to the promise to Abraham. That's what Matthew's talking about. But not just that. In the middle of it, it mentions that the nation of Israel was deported, in verse 11, to Babylon. Do you know that history of Israel? It's not just the humans that are a mess in this genealogy. It's the whole nation. Problem after problem after problem. And what's revealed in that is God's pursuing hearts in the stories. If you read the genealogy and you're not half asleep or totally asleep when you go through it, you'll notice that there's some extra details. Do you know where the extra details come from? It's from the four women mentioned in the story. I did a series on this last year, and I, and I, I know that all of you remember it crystal clearly, but I also know that some of you are visiting. There are four women mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew, and their stories are really challenging. I actually saw a pastor mentioning recently, not in our denomination, not at this church, that he was not familiar with one of the stories. He's older than me. I was like, how'd you get to be a pastor without knowing your Bible? The stories of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, women very sinned against. Yet Matthew goes out of his way to bring them up in the genealogy. Why? Because they point out God's pursuing heart revealed in the story of the whole nation being deported violently, horrifically to Babylon. You see the heart of God towards these individual women who didn't have much of a shot in the culture they were given and yet they were faithful in the midst of Real challenging stories. The men, just as if not more messy. And what's happening is Matthew's helping us see that this legacy is being purified. Because for us, for our faith to matter, Jesus has to be both God and man. Hopefully you've heard this before. We'll talk about it before we take communion. We'll recite the Apostles' Creed where it's stated And here's the thing, like when I say Jesus is God and man, you're like, yeah, that's theology. I'm sure it's important. Every skeptic that I know that's now a follower of Jesus, this was the hinge for them. So this language that's, I think, overly familiar to us, therefore we miss the wild combining of all these things happening at the same time, the historical, the mundane, the religious, the philosophical, the supernatural, all happening at the same time, hinge upon something. Through Mary, Jesus is fully man. But through the Holy Spirit, he's fully God. 
That's how Christology begins. If Jesus isn't fully God, he doesn't have the power to save us from sin. If he's not fully man, we don't think he can relate to us. Or that he really suffered. That it was kind of just an act or he was pretending or something like that. A purified legacy leads to a miraculous birth. I kind of wonder if... You know how sometimes when you're having a dream, you want to talk more in the dream? You know, like someone's talking and you want to respond? Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you can talk in your dreams and I just haven't been coached in that. But I don't always say what I want to say. I wonder if it was like that for Joseph. When the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And he's like kind of okay with that. But then it says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You wonder if he was like, what's the Holy Spirit? You and I might be familiar with that language. But that might have been new for him. I kind of wonder. What did he think about that? If you read the Luke story, which involves Jesus' uh, cousin, John the Baptist, and his, his mom, uh, Elizabeth, and his dad, Zachariah, they respond quite differently. But Matthew just focuses on Joseph and Mary. Do you see what's happening here? Usually the message, be it philosophical or religious or whatever, is, does not combine all of these things together. Either there's something supernatural and that informs the present, or there's nothing supernatural and that informs your and my life. This is the supernatural and the historical and the mundane all coming together. God made flesh. The message has come to dwell with us. The Word, God, has come to, met, to dwell with us. History, philosophy, religion, literally colliding. And where I see that is just that little word. From the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Do you trust in the virgin conception and the virgin birth? That's part of what gives our heart confidence that God not only can save us, but he does save us and can relate to us. A purified legacy leads to a miraculous birth that almost didn't happen. Okay, let me be clear about something. I hate that this is in my notes, even though I wrote my notes. Because I don't want to imply that I don't think it wasn't going to happen. God is entirely in control. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. This story was inevitable, and yet Matthew presents it to us with little adverbs like quietly. Joseph was going to divorce her quietly. Because Matthew is including all of the tension of the moment. If you and I had been watching with some knowledge of what was going on, we would have been biting our nails if that's what we do when we're nervous. I snap when I'm nervous. I ever tell you guys that? I'd have been snapping. I'm watching this on like a well-done movie, probably done by someone who's not a follower of Jesus because their lack of affection for the story means they would have told it correctly. This was a tense story. I feel like, I, I just, I feel like non-Christian directors do a better job with Christian stories because they see the tension in the text. That's just my opinion, just Matt, but I feel like Christians are like, I love this story so much. It's just beautiful and sweetness and light. This was a tense story that if you and I had been watching, we would have been like, is this going to happen? Or like this, if you're like me. I do, I snap when I'm nervous. And part of the reason that Matthew includes these little details 
is that's how it actually happened. This is part of the proof that you and I have that the Bible is reliable. I cannot stand up here and prove to you that supernatural things occur. I can stand up here and point out to you that all the little details in these couple of verses prove that the text is reliable. I can go through the early sources that did not like Jesus at all, but would have affirmed the, re- the uh, reliability of the text. I can go through those that did affirm Christianity, that said the text was reliable. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Like betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she found to be with child. And Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing about the incarnation is changed if Joseph doesn't dissolve, resolve to divorce her quietly, or if he does, but you and I don't know about it. So why is Matthew including it? Because that's what happened. And those little things matter because they remind us that this text is reliable. Again, if you're considering the gospel of Jesus and the, and the supernatural, and especially the virgin conception and the virgin birth bother you, I can't convince you that supernatural things happen. I can point out that it's only in the past hundred years that people have even questioned supernatural at all. It's just been assumed. But we're so much more intelligent than the billions of people that came before us. So I'll say that somewhat sarcastically, hopefully that it came off as encouraging and or helpful. I should stick to my notes. You know why he was going to divorce her quietly is he probably had to pay. Not because he was buying her, but because the way that the culture worked in that time, as in a lot of cultures around the world throughout history, the husband paid a bride price. Well, a certain kind of man would take her to court and get his money back. But that wasn't Joseph's character. That's why Matthew includes it. And I don't care very much about you learning from Joseph, though I'm going to point something out about him in a few minutes, because Joseph is not our redeemer or our model. This is pointed out because it happened this way. But that little detail would have made a lot of sense for a long time as people remember that part of the culture. Oh, that was nice of him. He didn't care so much about his money back, getting his money back. The other reason I want to point it out is there's a tension that the scriptures present to us and that, that frankly, being a follower of God and Jesus presents to us regularly and it's this tension that God is fully in control and you and I have free will and the Bible presents it as a tension to be lived with not a problem to be solved the Westminster Confession of Faith presents it as first things and second things God is clear that he knows everything and he's fully in control and you could throw something at me right now because you have free will please don't or at least warn me And the reason that I point that out is not only because it's here in the text. Joseph is wrestling with this, but also because there's a humility that comes with this. Being a follower of Jesus automatically pushes upon us a humility that we don't have all of the answers. We do have a lot of answers and proof, especially about this time period in history, especially from these documents. And yet there's a There's some tension that we're asked to live with. God can be fully in control. You and I have free will. And working those two things out is is imperfect at best. Yet they're both presented to us through Scripture.
But Joseph did as commanded. Kind of simple, right? Following the Lord actually with our words, with our activity, with our stuff is simple. But it's not easy. Do you know everything Joseph was giving up in this moment? I mean, Bethlehem, not a big town. Israel, not a big country. Everybody's going to know this about their family forever. Forever. So his reputation is forever different. But he did as commanded. Joseph didn't get to name his boy. Jesus is not his son, but he was his son. Joseph was the human father that Jesus grew up with. He didn't get to name him. That was a really big deal then. Sort of still a big deal, really big deal then. Joseph just gave that up. You and I are asked to forgive those that hurt us. You and I are asked to be generous with what we have. You and I are asked to learn to use our words for love, not to hurt others. And each one of those commands in the moment is simple and not easy. Each one of those commands is not complex. And most of us have trouble doing it for a whole variety of reasons. Joseph, obedience is simple and, and very costly. Joseph's reputation was different for the rest of his life, as yours and mine will be if we choose to follow Jesus. If we choose to believe what Joseph believed, which is that God knew more about his happiness than Joseph did. In a traditional society, we'll often think that the culture, the, the community knows what's best for us. In an individualistic society, we believe that we know what's best for us, right? So if you're wondering what kind of society you live in, what do you think people think? Who knows best for them? Only I know what's best for I, right? Well, Scripture would push back on both kinds of culture and say that not only does God know what's best for us, He has purchased it. He has purchased that best through following Christ. It doesn't explain what Joseph thought as he considered other than how to do this kindly towards Mary. It doesn't say what he thought after he got up from the dream. It just says that he obeyed. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You and I have the same opportunity daily, weekly, yearly. Because God came to dwell with us, we know that he can relate. We, that's no longer an excuse. That's the difference between a follower of God before Jesus and after. In addition to the things that Jesus taught us about God, we learn that he can relate. That's why one of the reasons it's so important. And because he can relate, hopefully it's, it's a little bit easier for you and I to believe and to trust and then to follow him when he says, I know what's best for you. I have purchased that freedom in Christ and I'm asking you to follow. So my hope for myself this season and for you also is that as we hear this familiar language, as we look around, 
see the lights, perhaps remember that Jesus is the light of the world. As we see gifts everywhere, fake and real, decorative and not, we remember that the work and the life of Christ is a gift to us. That this language that is so astonishing not become familiar that it doesn't fill us with warmth and with hope. God came to dwell with us as Emmanuel.